you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to continue our study in 1 Peter uh, next week. Uh, normally we partake in the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of each month, but we're going to do that next week, uh, tie in with uh, verses 21 through 25 and really contemplate what that means. Uh, we will do that next week and uh, also take up our benevolence offering for those. Who, uh, normally we do it that first Sunday, but uh, I wanted to, to do it in conjunction with verses 21 through 25 of First Peter chapter 2. And we're studying First Peter and we're calling it weird. That word weird there means supernatural. It means uncanny. Our lives as believers, there ought to be there, there ought to be an element, uh, a huge element that is supernatural, uncanny, unnormal. And last week, uh, we've been building in First Peter, and last week we began the ever-popular study of submission. If you want to grow a church, just preach on submission. That's number one hit list. And, uh, I, we, and then on top of that, it was specific to governing authorities. We were, we're mixing religion and politics. How dare we? But the reality is, is that Peter is talking about how do believers live lives in a given context, in a given, in a given society that declare the excellencies of our God. That's the context. Living in a way that wages war against our flesh. We, we said a few weeks ago that we are to abstain. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says, Abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. And at the same time, in verse 12, he says to keep your behavior excellent so that the ones who slander you will have nothing to say. Other passages say live in such a way that the enemy will have nothing bad to say about us. Again, these passages, they're, they're our flesh is, is, is going to fight over the next few weeks. Next, I, I, I contemplated preaching verses 21 through 25 first only because Peter will hold up Christ as the example of how to suffer unjustly, how to suffer well unjustly. And yet, for whatever reason, he talks about submitting to authority and today submitting to bosses and and those, those leading us in that way. In two weeks, he'll talk about husbands and wives. And everything, again, everything that, that, that we see over these weeks, verse 21, Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Christ is our example. We're to follow in his steps. And, and what Peter begins to talk about is the role of unjust suffering in the life of a believer. Again, not a popular topic. Not a topic if, if I was just bouncing around, choosing passages each week to talk about, these last few and coming weeks probably wouldn't be the ones that I'd go to. And yet that's the beauty of preaching through a book. That's the beauty of preaching straight through a book. It forces you to deal with passages that, let's be honest, in our flesh we would avoid. Nobody wakes up in the morning and wives, I'm sure you wake up in the morning and say, well, let me go to 1 Peter 3 and in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. That'll bless you. 
there's a reason Oswald Chambers and these other, they don't email that, they're not emailing that passage to you probably. Sign up for this email. Yeah, okay. I'll sign up. Our flesh doesn't want anything to do with submission. Our culture certainly doesn't want anything to do with submission, especially unjust suffering through our submission. I, I can honestly tell you, one of the things that my flesh, that I hate more than anything, is suffering for something that, other, that somebody else did. To pay the consequence, to have to deal with, to suffer because of something that someone else did. Or because of something that I, that I didn't do or did not deserve to suffer for. And again, when we come to passages like this, our flesh fights what it says. It fights it so that it's hard for us even to hear it accurately our flesh the whole time that we listen to these passages i promise you your flesh is fighting it and it's going to make it very complicated very difficult for you to to hear it just as it is as preached you're going to fight it and i think at work there there are really two problems at work and i put them on your handout there as we're leading into this two two reasons that i think that we have a hard time with these passages and we have a hard time submitting to these passages that, that really hinder the reception uh, of these types of passages. And number one is we have an unbiblical view of what our salvation is truly about. We live in a world that, and a culture that is managed to make salvation all about the person being saved and not the God who is doing the saving. We, we come to salvation and we have this get mentality that it's all about us. That somehow there's a God out there that just ought to be thankful that I, would, that I would accept his salvation. He ought to be really glad that I would accept him. We, we, we live in a culture that, even a church culture, that has made salvation all about the one being saved. It's all about you. And the reality is, is you can look at everything in the Bible. You look at everything that God has ever done from start to finish. It was always about his glory. You go to Isaiah. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not, I will not share my glory with another. It's about his glory. That's the, that's the context again. So when you come to passages like today or 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Why should you and I do everything that we do to the glory of God? Because we serve a God who is doing everything that he does to his own glory. Because the reality is, who else would he glorify? He's the greatest. He alone is God. I have been saved to his glory. It's not about me. Certainly I receive blessings, but, but I am, again, 1 Corinthians 6, he says, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, therefore, glorify God in your body. Why were you bought? Why were you purchased? To glorify the one who purchased you. John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. We, we come to these passages and, 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 and our unbiblical view of salvation affects how we hear these things. 
and, and even the gospel that we're selling. We got to make sure we're preaching an accurate gospel. Come to God and come to salvation and get, get, get. No, you come, the, the reward, again, we'll see it in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also died, verse 18, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he bring, bring us to God. God is the blessing. Reconciliation to God, that's the blessing. It's not stuff, it's not prosperity, it's not that, hey, everything's going to be great, that you're going to get, 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 get. That's not, that's not it. You get God. You get reconciled to God. The unholy sinner reconciled to the holy God. That's what salvation is about. But, but not only an unbiblical view of salvation, we have an unbiblical view that if we live righteously, then we will not suffer. And all, all of us battle with that. In some way, shape, or form, we believe that look, if we will just do certain things, all of a sudden suffering becomes way out of context. Be honest, we do. The, the first, and, and you hear it, the first question that people ask when they suffer, the first, the first thing they struggle with is, does God love me? Listen, you have, a, you have, you have this theology that if God really loved you, then you would never suffer. And I really don't know where we get that from because it's certainly not in the Bible. The reality is, is all throughout the, all throughout the Bible, God's people suffered. And here's the reality. God was glorified in it and his gospel advanced through it greater than prosperity. If we go to church, we read our Bibles, if we pray, if we give, all of a sudden suffering seems way out of, way out of place. And for many of us, obedience and suffering are really incompatible. If you want to avoid suffering, do more good. That's our theology. And it's an, in, it's an unbiblical theology. And for many of us, we, we do not have a theological category, not only for suffering in general, but what about righteous suffering? What about unjust suffering? For many of us, we have no theological category for righteous suffering. How does that make sense? No realm that says God could accomplish great good through unjust suffering. And therefore, when we, when we suffer, when, when we go through things, especially unjustly, we wonder how could any good be accomplished here? And, and, and even beyond that, does God, we immediately, does God love me? That's why Paul, Peter, all the writers go to great extent, go to great distances, great effort, to help you understand, the one thing you cannot doubt is, does God love you? That's why he says in Ephesians 3, that you may understand the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of God's love for you. Even in 1 John 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon you, that you should be called children of God. Think about that. But the word there, see how great a love, it literally in the Greek means see what type of foreign love. It's totally grace and the way that God loved us, it is foreign to us. It makes no sense because we don't love that way. And, 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 and again, to put it in terms that we're using in our study of 1 Peter, the, the, the weirder you are, the, the more you stand out, the more you get attacked. That's the biblical truth. 
God, God, Jesus, he never, he never hid that from his disciples. Take a, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. If you want to come after me, you better die to self and follow me. If anyone wishes to save his life, he better lose it. For whoever seeks to save his life has lost it. If you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. And, and again, those are contrary, those are completely contrary to what is sold oftentimes within the gospel today. It's just different. We've changed it. And, and, and you know, you think about if you're in a war, I, we like to play Nerf Wars in our house. Sometimes we have them here, paintball, whatever. The more you're camouflaged, guess what? What I've realized is this. The better I am at hiding, the better I am at camouflaging myself, the less I get shot. Even the less I get shot at. And my fear is, is that, and I think what Peter is writing here as well, is that if we're not careful as Christians, we, we become very camouflaged. We fit into our culture all too well, and so we don't, we don't get shot at very much. And, and, and if, if I can be really honest as I was thinking through this, and I, and I appreciate the fact that, that for the most part I believe that we want to hear the word unadulterated, that, that you allow me to say the hard things, and, and hopefully I say them lovingly, graciously. I know I can get loud. I'm loud already, but I can get loud and, and passionate. But my, my passion, listen, it's, it's for God. I want us to be about God's business. I want us to glorify God. I want us to fall in love with God more and more and more. I want Him to be, to be glorified through our lives. I want us in 1 Peter 3.15 to be able to give a defense for the hope that is in us. But I want to start by doing it with gentleness and respect. And if, and if I can be honest, we, we have a generation, and again, as I look at my own life and as I pastor and as I talk to people and, and share the gospel, we, we have for generations lived in a country that in large part shared a Judeo-Christian ethic that for a large part aligned with the church. For the greater part of our culture in America, for the most part, whether you were a believer or whether you were not, you generally, there was a general commonality amongst believers and non-believers with regards to major ethical areas. You, you know what those are. I don't, need to, I don't need to go into depth on those. And maybe it wasn't called sin, but, but for the large, in large part, culture and Christianity shared a, a very common ethic. They looked a lot alike. And I think you would agree with that. My fear is, is that because of this, we as believers have forgotten that we're at war with the culture in which we currently live. That, that we're in enemy territory. That, that this is not our home. Even though we have been well received for generations, the biblical premise is this is not our home. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. For if anyone loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is not our home. The reality is, is we've been saved and we have been placed in a specific neighborhood, specific school, specific business, specific context, and we're on mission to declare the gospel. And my fear is because... 
culture has been so accepting for so long, we've forgotten our mission. My fear is is that in many ways we've laid down our guns. We haven't really taken our training very seriously. Why? Because we haven't been shot at in years. Matter of fact, when we go out in the world, the world applauds us, supposedly, and, and uh, appreciates us and, and accepts us, and we're not persecuted, and there, nothing ever happens to us for being a Christian. And listen, Satan has duped us into forgetting that we're at war. He's deceived us. I mean, it'd be like military troops in a foreign territory, and I was not in war, and many of you were, and so forgive me if this is a a dumb analogy and would never happen, but in my mind it works, so bear with me. It would be like a foreign, it would be like a group of soldiers sent to a foreign territory, sent to patrol or take a land where the, where the people are told to be their enemies and yet they're applauded, they're loved on, they lavish gifts on them, they want them there, they invite them into their homes and have dinner with them, they, they live like them, they haven't been shot at in years. Eventually, those troops, the fear is those troops forget that they're at war. They forget that the people around them, that this is not their home, that they're sent there to to seek and save the lost, not live like the lost. They, They let their guards down. They don't train as hard. They don't take their mission as seriously as it once did. They don't live on the alert. Why? Because they've forgotten they're in enemy territory because they've not been treated like enemies. Those soldiers might even lay their guns down and begin playing with the enemy. Forge relationships with the enemy. They may not take their cleaning their gun as seriously. They may not take training with their gun as seriously. They may even forget how to use their gun. Maybe they can't even find their gun because they haven't used it in so long. My, my fear is, is, that is that that's a picture of us as Christians in America regarding the spiritual war that we're here to fight. For so long in America, we really haven't had to rigorously defend our faith. Why? Because culture in a large part agreed with what we believed, even ethically. Maybe not with regards to Jesus Christ, but ethically. We really haven't felt strong opposition as we do today in large part, and and thus we're unprepared to fight. We're unprepared to give a defense. Maybe we've forgotten we're here to fight. Maybe we've laid our Bibles down. Maybe we've become less diligent and disciplined about memorizing our Bibles, about studying our Bibles, about learning about this great God who has saved us. We, We really don't, we're not able to address the issues of the day biblically. Why? Because we haven't had to. Maybe we're just not good with our Bibles anymore. We can't wield our swords well. Why? Because we haven't had to. We haven't been, we haven't been opposed in a long time. But that's changing rapidly. Even, even this week, and I, and I struggled whether to share this or not because I don't want this to be about, I'm not trying to make this about one sin or the other. This is just one study that shows that, that I wasn't looking for it. Somebody emailed it to me. I was forging this sermon, and it fit. And the study looked at generationally, generationally how things have changed. And again, this is not, this is not a sermon about one sin over the other. This is a sermon about attitudes, about sin, though. And this, this fits. 
It says this, and, and again, this is one sin. I don't want to lose you on this, but listen. Homosexuality is no longer the taboo that it once was. But figures suggest that young people are even more open to experimentation than previously thought. Listen to this. Generation X, that's the, the older generation. Forgive me for using older, but you're older. You're older. I'm getting there every day. I'm 42. I'm older than a lot of people now. Generation X, listen to me. 88% of baby boomers declared themselves to be exclusively heterosexual. 88%. The generation younger than them, millennials, 85%. The generation younger than them, 71%. The generation that's under 25 today, generation Z, 66%. You see what's happening? You see what's happening in our culture? That's one picture. You know what this study found? That the number one cause of that, the number one cause of that? Social media. Our kids, our generations are being introduced to sin more and more and more and more. They're being introduced to things that are unbiblical. They're being introduced to things that Satan is devising, that, that fights Bible, that is opposite Bible. They're being introduced to it earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. They're being bombarded with it day after day after day. And listen to me, apart from a staunch defense, eventually it becomes normalized. It becomes normalized. So that 66%, 6 out of 10 kids under 25, I can call them kids, I'm 42, I'm old. 66, 6 out of 10 people under the age of 25 would declare, only 6 out of 10 would say that they are exclusively heterosexual. That's the culture that, our, that my kids and your kids are growing up in. I, I say that just to support, I didn't, I didn't find this study and then... I had wrote the sermon and wanted to share that challenge with you guys, and then this study came in Friday afternoon. But it supports what I'm saying. We live in a society that no longer is vastly aligned with what we believe on key issues. And the question is, are we prepared to defend ourselves? Are we prepared to give a defense? Are our kids prepared to give a defense? It was very interesting to me that the, the, one, of the main, one of the main culprits that they said that has caused the shift is social media. Our kids are being bombarded with stuff. So-called legitimate options for lifestyles. But can we defend ourselves? Listen, because we've got to fight. The, the days of not being shot at, the days of not suffering for your faith in America, in many ways are long past. The days of just, just kind of going with the flow and you can look Christian even if you aren't Christian, long past. The days of speaking up to the Word of God and taking a defense for the Word of God and not being, uh, not being um, uh, persecuted because of that, long past. Long past. I mean, more, more Christians are being persecuted today worldwide than ever before. 
I mean, I, I think about, I think about, you know, our think about our. I've thought about our security team, for example. By God's grace, we have we've not had any incidences here. Seven years, nothing's really transpired. You know, the result could be that they could let their that they could cease taking things seriously, that they could not train, that they could become casual about things. The the opposite is true. They are very disciplined in their training. And just this week, I mean, they go over scenarios, they go to the gun range, they train hard, they, they regularly have meetings. Just this week in Pasco County, listen to me, Pasco County, 91-year-old man pulled a gun on his pastor. The irony is, is the 91... I, Add a little levity to the a heavy subject. The irony is, is the 91-year-old man pulled a gun on his pastor because he thought the pastor was fooling around with his girlfriend. Now, that's a whole different sermon. Okay? But think about it. In Pasco County, I'm going to just clear the record. I'm not fooling around with anybody's girlfriends. I'm having a, huh? Or wives, exactly. Thank you, Raymond. Thank you, Raymond. But they, in Pasco County, in Pasco County, the, the challenge for us is, are we, are we prepared to suffer well? Are we so sold out on the truth of the gospel? Are we so sold out to the truth of who Jesus Christ is? Are we so sold out and convicted that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him? Are we so sold out to those truths that we will stand in opposition no matter what the opposition is? That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And, and that's the context setting up where we see all of what we're seeing here in in First Peter, he's gone to great lengths to say, to again, do you understand that you have a living hope that is only through Jesus Christ? That's where it all starts. If he is your living hope, then you can take the job. You can take the stuff. You can suffer. Why? Because those things cannot touch where your hope is. But if your hope is in stuff, if your hope is in the things of this world, all of a sudden when you start to suffer and the things of this world are taken away from you, all of a sudden you buckle. Why? Because that's really where your hope is. And if your job is a means to get stuff and accumulate money and the stuff of the world and fame and all this other stuff, and that job is taken away from you, now all of a sudden you're mad. Why? Because it was a means to stuff. But if your job is taken away because you take a stand for the gospel and you're willing to suffer for that no matter the cause, and, it cre and knowing the Bible says that creates intimacy with the Savior, then all of a sudden taking of your job is actually a good thing. But, but it revolves around, where's my hope? That's why Peter started there in verse 3. You have a living hope. Where is your hope? If your hope is not that in all things Christ would be glorified through your life, then suffering is not going to ever have a proper context. If your hope is in the things of this world and suffering causes those things to be thwarted and not received, listen to me, you're going to buckle because your hope is really the things of this world. It's Luke 12, 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And listen to me, we'll defend our treasure. It's very interesting, again, in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The first start, set Him apart. 
And we'll get to it, but that's in the context of, of, of being men-pleasers and not God-pleasers. Where it starts is deciding in verse 14 that you're going to serve God, you're going to seek to please God and not men. That's what he's saying. The whole context, that is the theme throughout all of this, seek to please God. Even what we see today, more than anything, seek to please God, not men. Seek to please God more than men. And yet, yet do the, try to be at peace with all men. Romans 12, 18, even here, what Peter says is, try to be at peace with all men. But there may come a time where that's not possible. In those, tan, in those cases, stick with the gospel. In those times, stick with God. Even in unjust suffering. Even in unjust suffering. And you'll see there on your handout the main point. Believers called upon to seek to bring glory to God through all we do and, li and to live winsome lives in an unbelieving society, even if it involves unjust suffering due to our faith in Christ. Looking to our blessed Savior who endured the same, and we'll see that next week. Again, last week it was government. This week, look, look at verse 18. Servants. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the, excuse me, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Do, do you see the theme of God being glorified, of, of finding favor with God? It's not about my comfort. It's about doing what is pleasing to God more than anything else. Peter is especially concerned in these, in these verses, all this context. He is concerned about you abusing your freedom that the gospel brings to, a, to an extent that you malign Christianity. Living in a way as a believer that brings shame upon our Savior or among the church. Abusing your freedoms, using your freedoms in such a way that non-believers, people outside the church, can malign the church because of how you're living. It's our testimony. We ought to be concerned about the reputation, not only of our God, but of the people of God. About not bringing on unnecessary accusations. And at the very same time, the irony that Peter is battling is this. Christianity in and of itself was and is in many ways disruptive. It's troublesome. It's contrary to society. How do we navigate that? How do we be weird, but weird, on a, weird for a purpose? And how do we stand up when it's needed to stand up? Our allegiance to Christ will always at some point be contrary, it will be disruptive, it will be troublesome to our culture. Please, please, please understand that. Allegiance to Christ will always create opposition in your culture because they're opposed. The ruler of this world, if you will, is Satan, it says. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and yet God has come that you would have life and have it abundantly. They're, they're opposing forces. We don't intentionally look for trouble, but, but when it comes, the question is, how do we respond? 
That's what Peter is addressing. He is attempting to equip you and I and his, his readers in that day to be, to be to able to respond rightly to unjust suffering and understand what God is doing. So two, two quick points just to, that Peter makes that help us understand this and hopefully be equipped. You'll see in your handout, believers must first understand the reality of unjust suffering and the role that it plays in their lives. That is tied directly to your identity. Understand the reality. It shouldn't be surprised. Later on in chapter 4, verse 10, Peter is going to say that. Or, or chapter 4, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Verse 12 of chapter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. There's a reality of unjust suffering as a believer. This is not our home. We're foreigners. We're aliens. We don't belong here. I, I remember uh, last year I went to the Florida State Florida game. It was in Gainesville. I was invited to go. I went. I wore my Florida State stuff. How do you think they received me? They didn't say, hi, I really appreciate you coming in here, big boy. I was in enemy territory. How do you think somebody walking into Doe Campbell Stadium would be received with a gator shirt? It, again, we're, we're in enemy territory. I, expect it. And, and again, the home, what Peter is dealing with is the home was believed even then to be the key to civilization and, and an orderly, prosperous society. And many of the homes in that day had slaves. Many of these slaves were believers. And so these believers, they're coming to Christ, and their question is, okay, what does it mean for me now that I'm in Christ and I'm a slave? What does my new allegiance to Christ mean for my role as a slave? Do I revolt? Do I continue where I'm going, the way I'm going? Much was at stake. And again, where Peter takes it is the reputation of the gospel. The reputation of the church, that's where he takes it. I mean, believers have been born again to a new life. They have new allegiances. They've been set apart by God for his own possession. And Peter is saying, this is how that new allegiance plays out in your given context in a given society. And you see it in your handout. What Peter does is reminds the believers that they have to realign their loyalties. Realign their loyalties in every role to the kingdom of God. If you're going to live responsibly, Align your loyalties to Christ more than anything. And, and again, in Peter's day, slavery looked vastly different than what we think about when we think about slavery. It's important to keep in mind. Some estimates, some estimates say that over half the population in that day were slaves. And in many cases, they were in homes and they were being treated as if they were a member of the family. Very different. I'm not justifying it. I'm just simply saying the context was different. Many were teachers of their children. Many were physicians. They were well-educated. In many cases, the father of the home, you can go to Galatians 4 and see this, would hand off his children to a, to a slave to raise his child to maturity so that when he would get the proper age, the father could basically hand off the family business. The role of that education went to the slave in many, in many cases. And yet, clearly, some owners were not good. That's what Peter's dealing with. Just like today, some of our bosses aren't good. And that creates a tension. The, the word there in verse 18, 
not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. The word there literally means crooked or perverse. These are people who walk all over other people in order to get ahead. These are people who take advantage of people. And they're saying, how do we respond? We we live in a sinful world. The reality is is that you're going to encounter sinful bosses. You're going to encounter people that walk all over you, that take advantage of you in the workplace. And the question for you too is going to be, how do we respond? And Peter says, submit as long as you can glorify God in that endeavor. Submit. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Again, the word respect there, and this is, again, important to keep in mind, with all respect. The word here is the same for respect, is the same word that Peter uses for fear in other places. He's saying, fear God. Do this in fear of God. Do this seeking to honor God. Seeking to please the Lord in all respects. As long as you can honor God through it, as long as you're not violating your conscience, as long as you're not violating a direct command, if you can glorify God in and of it, do it. Seeking to protect the Lord's reputation. Not not necessarily your reputation. Seeking to protect the body of Christ's reputation and the churches. Because you can imagine if all the slaves that became believers, they just revolted, you can understand the chaos that that would have created and you can understand how malign Christianity would have been in that culture. And our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. It's God whom we ultimately answer to. That's what he's saying in all respect, in all fear of God. It's our fear of God that guides our conduct, even with bad bosses. And you'll see it on your handout there. Our submission doesn't depend on the character of our earthly master, but on the reputation and glory of our true king. We're we're doing this in response to the character of our true king. Our flesh wants to rebel. Our flesh wants to insert our own rights. And yet these situations provide us a unique opportunity to display the glory of God, but also the power of the gospel. Even when your master or boss is bad, you can submit by the power of the gospel. That's what Peter's saying. Why? Because ultimately we serve a different king. And Peter is writing in a way that allows social order to be maintained, but yet allows their loyalty to Christ to be maintained as well, in line with their new identity. And that's, if we're honest, that's where you and I struggle. How do I, how do I maintain relationships and yet maintain loyalty to Christ? How do I live in a foreign land, but yet maintain allegiance to my true king? How do I use my freedom that, that, that glorifies my king without taking advantage of my freedom and using it for myself? And that's always been the challenge. Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 10, he deals with that. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. And in both of those contexts, he takes it to the glory of God. In chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he takes it to the glory of God. In chapter 10, verses 31, he takes it to the glory of God. Use your freedom in such a way that doesn't serve self, like we saw last week, but instead glorifies God. You're free. But use your freedom to glorify God. Not as an excuse for the flesh. Not as an excuse to serve self. Because, listen, we're real good at justifying, are we not? Nod your heads up and down, north and south. 
We're real good at justifying what we want to do. Really good at it. Professionals at it. You, you name something you really, really want to do. I promise you, you'll find a verse. I promise you, you'll be convincing to your friends. Look, we're really, really good at it. That's using your freedom in an unbiblical way. Could be, at least. Versus glorifying God. You, you see it on your handout. Our new life in Christ and the living hope that has been ushered in through faith is to be lived out within the existing social structures as much as possible. One of the, and you can go to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul deals with this. One of the first things people do when they come to Christ is they think everything's got to be different. They leave their job. They leave their friend. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. And live in light, he's saying, live in light of our new birth and not our old self. Live to God's glory and not our own glory. Being mindful of the church's reputation in society and thus the reputation of our Lord through even how we suffer. Align our lives with the gospel and with kingdom priorities, not selfish priorities. Think about primarily, how is this going to affect my testimony? How is this going to affect my, my relationship with the world? Who is this ultimately about? Ask yourself that when you're struggling. Is this primarily about me? Or is this primarily about the glory of God? Because it ought to primarily be about the glory of God. And our reputation before a watching world. And, and even with bad bosses, we can submit. And so Peter, Peter says, understand the reality. Understand the reality. You're going to suffer. First Timothy, I think it's 1 Timothy 3.12. It's either 1 or 2 Timothy 3.12. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Understand the reality. Jesus was very clear with his early disciples on the reality of suffering. But not only the reality, secondly, Peter says, believers must realize that unjust suffering, when faced rightly, brings glory and honor to God and, re and rewards to us in the next. Understand what God's up to. Understand what God is accomplishing. That, that's always been the issue. How can God be glorified? How can God be accomplishing anything good in this situation? Again, you go back to Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, one of my favorite verses, really a, a theme that really sees it playing out. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, mistreated, goes through all this trouble, and then all the while God is carrying him to a point in time where he will be able to provide food for not only his family but for the nation. And his brothers stand before Joseph and they're repentant. And here's what Joseph said. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The reality of unjust suffering, but also what God is accomplishing in unjust suffering. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for the, to the good. For what, Hey, be careful quoting that one. For those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. 
Don't, don't share that with an unbeliever. It says, for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. God, God is sovereign. He's working things out for good according to His purposes, whether we see them or not. We may never see them, and yet He's still at work. And Peter, in verses 19 and 20, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Peter takes everything back to their identity as God's people. Again, that's the why, the why behind everything else. It's not my comfort, it's not my peace of mind, it's not my, it's not my prosperity. It's the glory of God. It's the glory of the one who has called me out of darkness into marvelous light. It's the glory of the one who has adopted me. It's the glory of the one who has, who has lavished his love upon me. It's the glory of the one who has called me. That's why, again, why Peter begins in verse 3 of chapter 1, reminding us of the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. No matter what this world takes away from us, no matter what this world, what it costs us, we have a living hope. We have an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishing. It will never fade away, he says. Persevere. Hang in there. And you see it on your hand now. We must see God rightly and ourselves rightly in order to see suffering rightly. God in his glory must be preeminent in our lives. If that's not the case, then suffering will not be seen rightly. If glorifying God is not preeminent, again, if our glory, our comfort, our prosperity, worldly stuff, if that is the goal, suffering will never have a right context because suffering will prevent, will frustrate the achievement of worldly things, and that's going to make you frustrated. But if glorifying God is the goal, that'll never be frustrated. Even in suffering, God gets great glory. That's what Peter says. If you suffer for doing what is right and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And again, even as a slave, Peter is saying, God can get great glory in your life. Even as a slave in that day, you have a huge role in the outworking of the advancement of the gospel. And you see it on your handout. What Peter is doing is reworking a believer's expectation in social settings based on who they are. This is what you ought to rightly expect as a believer. And again, Peter is not up, he's not concerned with upholding slavery. He's not endorsing slavery. Slavery was a normal social uh, practice, and he's regulating it. But he's giving it dignity, saying, look, you slave, you can give God great glory in doing what you're doing. No matter what you're doing. And that translates to you and I. No matter what you're doing, God can get great glory through it. I mean, the issue of a slave's response to his master had far-reaching cultural implications in the day where there were millions of slaves. And he's more concerned about the reputation of his Savior than he is the reputation of any one individual. He's not endorsing slavery. He's saying, listen, this is a social norm. It exists. Here's how you, slave, can give God glory. 
You go to 1 Corinthians 7, hey, look, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. If not, live to the glory of God. And, and the issue, you'll see it on your handout, the issue is our witness to a pagan world as we submit to us the authority regardless of their worth. And we'll see next week, Jesus Christ himself did this. And, and accomplished great glory, even salvation, through his unjust suffering. I mean, if you're being treated unfairly at work, you may be looking at a tremendous opportunity to bear witness on behalf of Christ through your behavior. If you lay down your rights, if you, if you forego your rights in a Christ-like manner, the people around you may notice and wonder, why is this person not fighting for his rights? Maybe you'll get an opportunity to tell them. Maybe you can tell them that your hope is not in the things of this world. Maybe you can tell them that your hope is in Jesus Christ, of which the things of this world cannot touch. And again, your words now are backed up by a powerful testimony. And, and, and then these individuals have nothing bad to say. They have no way to malign the church because you know what they'll say? Look, I may not believe what he believes, but that joker, he stood up to persecution. He endured And again, P, again, Peter in, in verse 19, he makes this way, it's way beyond just slaves. If a person, if a person, he says, bears up under unjust suffering. The reality is all of us are slaves. If you're a Christian, you're a slave to God. I realize that's not popular language, but that's how you're referred to in the Bible. Bondservant, doulos. You are not your own, you've been bought with a price. If you're not a believer, listen to me. You're not a free person either. You're a slave to sin. Either way, you're a slave. You think you're your own man? You're not. You're a slave to sin. You're doing what your sinful desires tell you to do. So either way, you're not free. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. And he's saying, don't use... Don't you, and, in, and in contrast to slavery to sin, our slavery to Christ feels like freedom, but don't use your freedom to glorify self. The goal is the glory of God. The goal is the rewards that is coming. And again, it's tied directly to obedience. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it, verse 20, with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Bearing up, suffering unjustly. And listen, if, if you're a believer, and I, I want to say this carefully, if you're a believer and your supervisor is constantly getting on to you about the lack of the quality of your work and your tardiness and your attitude, and, and listen, that ain't unjust suffering that Peter's talking about. That's called bad work ethic. That's called lazy. You deserve to get punished. Seriously, you're maligning the name of our Lord through a bad work ethic. That's not, and, and that's, the, we, we've not been persecuted, and so when anything happens, we immediately, I'm being persecuted. No, you're just a bad employee. You're lazy. You're entitled, whatever. But, but listen, if, on the other hand, if your work is done to God's glory, and, and your work shows that excellence, and your hard work, and your diligence, and at the same time, in all that, your supervisor may ridicule you and he may pass over you for a promotion 
and give it to somebody less qualified simply because you're a believer, that's the unjust suffering Peter's talking about. And here's what Peter would say. Like my grandfather used to say, buck up, little camper. Pull up your bootstraps and carry on to the glory of God. To the glory of God. Why? Because that's what finds favor with God. That's what glorifies God. Why? Because our living hope. We have a hope that's not in the things of this world. And as believers, we may not receive our reward, you see it on your handout, on this side of eternity, but God has promised that if we persevere, then that should say, then we will receive, sorry, it says the new, then we will receive our just reward. That, that's why Peter, again, we said the whole point, 5.12, stand firm in the grace of God. Don't waver. Persevere. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his name's sake. That word granted is the word grace. It has been graced to you, believer, not only to believe in him, but to suffer. Paul is writing that from a, sitting in a jail unjustly. And he says it's grace. Just before that, he says in verse 12, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of my circumstances, knowing that my circumstances have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, that the whole Praetorian Guard, having heard of my imprisonment and chains on behalf of Christ, have come to know the Lord. There, even in Paul's day, there was, an, there was a, a misunderstanding about suffering and the furtherance of the gospel. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. The furtherance of the gospel has actually occurred because of my imprisonment in chains in chapter 3 that's why he holds out Epaphroditus that he he almost died on behalf of serving Paul unheard of in that day you would serve to your own death a man that's in prison and Paul says absolutely Epaphroditus did it's always about the advancement of the gospel and if that's not the why, if it's about us, then we're going to be frustrated. Matthew 5, 46, Jesus says the same thing. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing weird about that. There is something weird about loving your enemies. There is something weird about going the extra mile with those who persecute you. That's weird. That's supernatural. That's what Peter's saying. Even in, even, I mean, again, Jesus made, he made this abundantly clear, the reality of suffering. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's weird. Rejoice and be glad. Okay. That's weird. You know what he's saying? No temptation is coming upon you. No suffering is falling upon you that hadn't fallen upon Christians all throughout the ages. Rejoice and be glad to be counted amongst the greats. Our hope is in the Lord. 
If you suffer unjustly in, in this world at the hands of wicked masters, you're blessed because your reward is great in heaven. And, and you see it as I close in your, on your hand out there. One way to apply this is to consciously recognize that you don't primarily work for your employer. You work for God. And, and we just saw in Colossians chapter 3, Paul made that very clear. He said, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I, I read real quick, and I'll close, Howard Hendricks shared a story of he was on a plane one time and they, had, they were delayed on the ground, and the passengers were becoming increasingly impatient. There was this obnoxious man who kept venting his frustrations on the stewardess, and she just kept being gracious and gracious and gracious and gracious in spite of what Howard Hendricks said was his abuse. And after they got airborne, Dr. Hendricks called the woman over and said, Hey, I want to get your name because I, I want to write to your superior. I want to tell them you know, how gracious you were and how amazing uh, you handled that and just commend you to your employer. And she responded this way. She said, thank you, sir, but I don't work for American Airlines. He said, what do you mean you don't? She said, I work for my Lord Jesus Christ. And she went on to explain to him that before every flight, she and her husband would pray together that she would be a good representation of Christ on the job no matter what. And guys, that, that would be... Excuse me, that would be, I think that's Peter's cry and that's my cry. That we would be accurate representations of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the goodness and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what. Hebrews, Hebrews 11 says, Faith, without faith it is impossible to please God, for him who comes to God must believe that he is, that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. There will come a day where we will get our rewards. It's coming. In this world, Jesus says, you will have much tribulation. Tribulation, Take heart. I've overcome the world. Romans 8.18, For I do not consider the present sufferings worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Take heart. Endure. Endure. This is not our home. Don't get comfortable. Don't lay your guns down. Be prepared to fight to the glory of God.